Well, since you sang that so beautifully, and you were asking for me to tell you the story of Jesus again, we'll do that this morning. So you turn to John chapter 12, and Jesus will call to us one more time in his public ministry. That may seem unexpected, because if you look through the Gospel of John, you might notice that we have 21 chapters, and so we're only a little halfway through the book. So what more uh, is the book filled with if his public last public call? And I think there's a little bit of a difference here. I think the public teaching ministry has already ended, but as he's coming to Jerusalem as the king, but as the prince of peace, right, he is making... And as he's getting questions still about his identity, certainly with the people waving the palms and crying Hosanna and signifying that he is the Messiah, there is great expectation at this point that he is come. But there's a lot of confusion as to why Jesus has come. He's not come for political salvation or to bring political salvation, but he's come to bring spiritual salvation that will as well um, end in the in physical salvation in our very bodies being renewed as well for those that put their faith and trust in him all of that will be accomplished Um, but um, Jesus or John takes after this chapter the rest of his time he still has much teaching to proclaim or to let us know about what Jesus says, but it's to Jesus' disciples. The rest of his teaching that we will be covering in the Gospel of John is Jesus and his disciples in the upper room and beyond as they head to the garden even, and we will find a lot more teaching and and even Jesus' prayer. We have a lot more to learn about Jesus, but this is his last um, opportunity that he will take to call people to him, and he's going to call them to believe in the light. Jesus has announced that the hour has come for him to be glorified, but to be glorified specifically through his death. Isaiah 53 that was just read um, is a fulfillment of that, and we'll see that here in just a little bit. He calls his followers, as we saw last week, to suffer for the glory of God as he will soon suffer with the knowledge that they will receive future honor from his father. God will honor us. We saw that in Second Peter this morning as we were reminded that God will honor those that faithfully serve him and that grow in Christ's likeness. And that ties in with Jesus' claim as well, that those that faithfully serve his father will be honored. But as Jesus talks about his death, and as we see here in verse 27, don't misunderstand. Jesus is certainly not trivializing or being glib about his suffering in death and in his humanity, his full humanity. Let's understand that. Full humanity, full deity. Again, remarkable. Marvel at that. In his full humanity, not just in the Garden of Gethsemane, but here as well. Before even the upper room discourse, he lets us know that his soul is troubled. Verse 27, that word means deeply troubled. That is a a Greek word for a deep 
soul um, uh, producing uh, trouble and angst, and he struggles with what is about to face. He's not struggling with whether to obey his father or not. Let's be clear about that. But in his humanity, he knows what he's about to face. But then he says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. What, what would my response be to this deep troubling about what's about to take place? That the Lord would save me and allow and, and take me from this somehow? And then he quickly gives the answer to that. No, that can't be the right response. And it won't be the right response is really what he's saying there. But I've come for a purpose and I will see that purpose through. For this cause or purpose came I unto this hour. What is that purpose? That his father would be glorified. Father, glorify thy name. And then Jesus calls for us to believe in his light while we have opportunity. Folks, that's what we're calling you to this morning as we continue in this passage. Um, he says, verse 32, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, will draw all men unto me. And he explains later on that the, that is all kinds of men, of people that will put their faith and trust in him. The call Jesus is going to make this morning one more time to those around him publicly is believe in the light. Put your faith and trust in him. I hope that you're willing to do that as we continue to look at him this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity to again share in, in micro um, fashion the gospel that we, through our faith and trust in Christ, a one-time decision. But, for, Lord, for those that have not done that yet, or for those who have been playing a game and the profession is not sincere, it's not true, there's not sincere dependence and trust in you, may today, may they hear Jesus' call and put their faith and trust in him. Father, for the rest of us, help us to be faithful, faithful children of light, faithful examples of the light of Christ, that we may draw help as your tool, draw people to Christ through a proclamation and lifestyle of the gospel. So Lord, help us, be, motivate us, and encourage us as we continue to look at this this morning, for it's in Jesus' name we do ask and pray. Amen. Believe in the light, and we are called to believe in the light in verses 27 through 40. And I've described this part as we must trust the mission of the light. The light is Christ. He will tell us that, and he came on a mission. And we just described that even in the introduction. He's troubled about what he's about to face, but he will see the mission through. And that is that he will die for the sins of the world. And in his death, he will glorify the Father. You know, so many times we look at the death of Christ and we understandably look at it and think, what a tragedy, what an awful thing that Jesus had to go through. And it was truly awful. And yet at the same time, Jesus reminds us here that in his death, not just in his resurrection, but in his death, that his death would bring great glory to the Father. His death in all that he would suffer 
because he was giving himself as the sacrifice for our sin, providing salvation that we desperately needed, not at this point political salvation, but salvation from sin and from death and from the grips of Satan himself. And he is going to provide that very soon. And he says, Father, in all that I do then, verse 28, glorify thy name. In this special moment, then again, sometimes we forget that at this moment, too, there is a voice from heaven, not just at Jesus' baptism, but also at this moment. Then there came a voice from heaven. This is the Father saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. Bob, the Father giving his confirmation that all of Jesus' earthly ministry so far has glorified him. He has perfectly followed the law. He has done what needed to be done. And now Jesus' death will also glorify him. The confirmation from the Father himself, from heaven. And it was audible because people, it was intended for people to hear. And people did hear, but as so often with this group. And we tend to do this today with God's word. They misunderstand it. They don't truly hear. Verse 29, the people, therefore, that stood by heard it, and some said that it thundered. It was huge thunder. Isn't that strange? Thunder. It's, it's not even a cloudy day, maybe. And uh, yet we heard thunder, and they were marveled at. Others say, no, that was, that was an audible voice. It was an angel that spake to him. It's amazing. And Jesus answered and gives them the answer that they, they seems like the Bible is saying here, they should have heard, but they didn't have ears to hear. Jesus answered and said, this voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. And Jesus makes clear the greater purpose for this voice. Why did the father speak about him in this way? The purpose was to testify to these people that were around him. Although it was also, we can't leave out the fact that it was an encouragement to Jesus as well, but the people needed emphasize to them that the most important event in world history was about to take place and that it would give great glory to God. And the people needed to understand that the death of Jesus would please and glorify God. Amazing to think and ponder on that. But the truth is there. And three specific things then it would set in motion. And that's verse 31. Now is the, now is the judgment of this world. That's one thing. Now shall the prince or the ruler of this world be cast out. That's number two. And number three that will be accomplished. And I, verse 32, if I be lifted up from the earth and his crucifixion and death will draw all men unto me. Three things, judgment, Satan's defeat, and the drawing of people to Jesus from all over the world. Well, how is that going to be accomplished? Well, let's get a little more specific. How is judgment going to be accomplished through Jesus' sacrifice? Well, the cross, when Jesus was sacrificed, was crucified, that cross would divide then between those who believed. Think of even the thief on the cross that put his faith and trust as Jesus is dying. And many more that would put their faith and trust in Jesus' sacrifice. It will divide between those that believe and those who reject Jesus' sacrifice. And then those that reject Jesus' sacrifice will bring judgment upon themselves. And judgment will come. And so Jesus says, through my sacrifice, judgment is coming. 
That's the negative. But the positive is Satan will be defeated. In other words, Jesus says, when I die, Satan's days are numbered. He's not going to be affecting you eternally. This will be his, my victory, and I will conquer him and conquer his ultimate power over you. The prince of this world will be headed down the road to being cast out. And one day, thankfully, Jesus will cast him into the lake of fire, and he won't have influence ever again. Praise the Lord for that. But the hour would also come, number three, that Jesus would be lifted up on a cross so that, remember, at this point, Jews and Gentiles are seeking him. And that's why he says, his hour has come. They're seeking me. And they will be able to come to him for salvation. Those three things Jesus emphasizes here that are about to happen. But the people misunderstand. I mean, this is his mission. And they need to put their faith and trust and believe in what he's saying. But they misinterpret. They misunderstand. They have been taught the Old Testament scriptures for years. And they still misunderstand. They do understand a few things. They have, it seems like they understand at this point that he is referring to himself, that he is saying that he's the Messiah, and that is their expectation. Jesus is the Messiah, but it seems they finally have some sort of inkling by how he says this, that he is going to die. They seem to take from his words here that he is going to die, and that confuses them because they're hoping that he's going to provide them political salvation and deliver them as a nation. And how is he going to do that if he's come to die? That doesn't make sense. And also, their understanding from Old Testament scriptures is that the Messiah would come and reign eternally. So how can there be death involved in this picture? They can't connect these two realities because of their misunderstanding of scripture. And folks, just a practical reminder as well that we can be versed in scripture for a long time and still misunderstand things because we don't actively try, uh, are, are in it regularly and, and asking the Holy Spirit to help us to understand. Never feel like you've arrived when it comes to your understanding of scripture. Always be ready for the Spirit to show you deeper truths um, and a, a deeper sense of what you've known already. And these folks are confused. It says here, the people answered him, verse 34, we have heard out or from the law, the Old Testament scriptures in whole there, that Christ abideth, the Messiah abideth and remaineth forever. How sayest thou then that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And they seem to understand he's talking about death. Who is this Son of Man? They're saying, who is this person you're referring to? Because this doesn't match our description of Messiah. And Jesus, he's had this tendency, but he doesn't address that, that uh, question directly. But he uses this, again, to emphasize trust his mission and trust the way of the light. The way that the light is leading, pointing to him. And he warns them. Take advantage of my light while it's with you. Then Jesus said unto him, yet a little while longer is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon. Or really, this is a great, uh, a, a serious, sobering visual picture of darkness literally overtaking you, of chasing you and overtaking you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. Jesus, again, 
has his own response. Jesus doesn't have to. He's not um, obligated to answer every question in the way that people want him to. And Jesus says, far more important is for you to follow me now. I'm warning you. Come, follow me. Believe in me. You have a little longer. Time is limited. Take advantage of this while you can. What does this mean to walk in the light? Well, it's a beautiful picture of Jesus as the light. And really, it means to walk or to follow after Jesus in faith. To follow the the light of the gospel, of the truth of who he is, and believe in him. And also the idea here that this... Also, this, this directly refers to his earthly ministry, right? Not that these folks won't have opportunity once he dies and is resurrected and, and uh, ascends to heaven. That's not the point. But I think what Jesus is saying here, it's not going to, the decision to follow and believe in me will not get any easier after I'm gone. You need to take this opportunity now and believe in me while I'm here. Because ultimately, if you reject me in this life with the life that God has given you, you will be swallowed up, is the picture here, in eternal like darkness. You'll be blinded for all eternity. Very practical application of this, folks, is that still, if there's someone here who has not truly put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, folks, don't play around with this. While you have light, while you're breathing, Before Jesus returns, put your faith, believe in the light before you are swallowed up in spiritual darkness. Don't let that happen. Jesus calls to us today, believe, put your faith and trust in me before it's too late. And that's what he calls to these folks as well. Those that believe in the light will take on the very characteristics of light. And of eternal life. Look at verse 36. While you have light, believe in the light. There is his call, the overarching call of all this passage. Believe in the light that ye may be the children of light. And those that have put their faith, have trusted in Jesus, will continue to resemble him more, will take on the characteristics of light. Again, that's one of the reasons we're going through, that is the reason we're going through this study in Sunday school, is for us to take on more of the characteristics of light, of Jesus, and to become more like him. The sons of light will always, to some extent, whether it's weak or strong, reflect the light of Jesus Christ. We, We can't do otherwise. We can't truly trust Christ and not have any of his light emanating from us, and not be a testimony of him at all. We will, to some extent or another, be children of light, but we can grow in that. We're glad, then, that he allows us to do that. Leon Morris, a commentator that I read a lot when I'm studying the Gospel of John, says, sons of light are those whose lives have been so revolutionized that they may be characterized with reference to light. One cannot be a follower of Jesus, the light of the world, and be half-hearted about the light. Folks, if you truly love the light, love Jesus, you won't serve him half-heartedly. You'll serve him with all your heart and be glad to learn more, to take on the characteristics of that light. 
Look what happens here in the last part of verse 36. After he says this, these things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. It's almost if I think this is a possibility. Yes, he's saying his time has not come. It's coming soon for him to offer up himself, but it won't be today. And then he gives a picture or an example of what it'll be like when the light disappears and he hides himself as a picture of um, the light soon departing from them. Again, to make an impact on people's minds and hearts. So as we continue on through this, folks, you think of all that we have read so far in the Gospel of John, all the wonderful teachings that we've read that Jesus has given, that he taught, and much more to these people, right? His earthly ministry included much more teaching than we have included in the Gospels. And then his miracles, these sign miracles, John, again, specifically emphasizes these as signs of who Jesus is. And they've seen all of this. You know what's astonishing? Three years of this kind of powerful ministry, and there's still so much unbelief. How can that be? It's remarkable. It's so remarkable. In verse 37, it describes this. But though he had done so many of these miracles, signs before them, yet they still believed not on him. How can it be? John gives us an explanation for this by tying it back to Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6.10. It's actually a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. What does Isaiah 53, 1 say? Again, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? What is Isaiah referring to here? Well, ultimately, this fulfillment, our report, would be the teachings of Jesus. They had the teachings of Jesus. Who would believe the teachings of Jesus? And who is the arm of the Lord revealed? Jesus, as he performed these miracles, certainly showed the arm of the Lord, the power of God within these people's midst. Who has this been shown to? God's people. And now the rest of that that passage that we read in Isaiah 53 points to the fact that Jesus would have to die and God would be glorified. But still in this is the idea that many people would not trust in what Jesus would do, that his ministry, teaching ministry and miracles would be met with dullness of spiritual hearing and sight. It was all the way in the Old Testament that told us that many would not believe, so we really shouldn't be surprised, John is saying. John chapter 6 and verse 10 says, Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. This is a marvelous verse. It's really terrible. In in some regards, as we look at God's sovereignty, but this refers here to people who have rejected God, and so God has hardened their hearts so that they cannot believe. says here, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. It seems there is a time as people reject God where God says, your time is done. And he hardens their hearts so that they cannot trust in him. And John says here that all of this was prophesied that this would happen and that people have rejected Jesus. There's much unbelief and God's hand is now 
involved in this as well. God's sovereign control. But again, the two sides of that, right? Because this is clear. And in fact, um, let's read this from John. I've read this from Isaiah, but let's read this from John. Verse 38, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report or what he heard from us? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, he says, they could not believe. Why? Because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their hearts. This is Isaiah 6.10. And hardened their hearts that they should or lest they not see with their own eyes, nor understand with their heart or be converted. That has the idea of turn to God. And I would heal them. It's a very strong statement about God's sovereignty in these things, that God controls this. But folks, what do we have on the other side of that coin? That we, we, We've just talked about this whole issue in predestination. Jesus has just called to people to believe in him. He's just called for them, believe in me. So Jesus calls, you have opportunity, believe in me. And the other side of this very clearly is God's sovereignty. Again, both of these things are strongly proclaimed in John, and we can't water either of these truths down. How they fit together, we'll never be able to understand, really. But they're there. And this gives us insight into how people could still not believe as Jesus, as they had this incredible ministry before them of the Word made flesh. So we've seen here. Um, that God can bring glory from Jesus' death on the cross. And practically speaking, then, if God can bring glory from the most awful, the worst thing that's ever happened in human history, a perfect, innocent man being crucified as a criminal, if he can bring good from that, the salvation and forgiveness of sins, folks, can he not work powerfully in our darkest hour to bring himself glory? Practically speaking, what are you facing that's, that, that troubles you today? What is the darkest thing that you face right now? It's certainly as, as troublesome and as difficult as it is, you won't face crucifixion on a cross for something you didn't do. If God can bring glory to himself and bring good from that, can he not then? Don't we have the hope that whatever trial and trouble you're facing that he can bring glory to himself from that too. So it's incumbent upon us as believers to follow him, to cling to him during those times, follow his light, follow his way. He will have a way for you through that dark time, through that difficult thing. He will lead you. Don't get bitter. Don't get upset, but follow him. And God will have his purposes done. It's a good reminder to us. We will be strengthened for the trials that we face. Jesus was received heavenly strength, as we'll find out later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, for what he was about to face. We can be strengthened as well. And then certainly this other very simple application that we just talked about. Folks, trust Jesus while you have opportunity, please. We're also going to see here in these last few verses of this passage, we will be judged. If we reject the light, 
We must, we're called, Jesus calls us to believe the light. And here is his warning that we will face judgment if we reject his light. And we must not allow power or prestige to keep us from faith. There were many, this may surprise us, there were many, even of the Sanhedrin, of the Jewish council, the Jewish leaders that believed in Jesus' ministry. We see this in verse um, 41. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Nevertheless, among the chief rulers of the authorities, also many believed on him. Uh, John's pointing out here that Isaiah said that this would happen even though he saw the glory of Jesus. How did he see the glory of Jesus in the Old Testament and then speak of him? Well, there's a number of possibilities here. I personally believe that there's a good chance. Remember that vision that Isaiah had at the beginning of his ministry where he saw the holiness of God and it just overwhelmed him and he fell to his feet? I think there's a good chance that that might have been a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus as the glory of God appeared before Isaiah. We're not told for sure on that, but Isaiah did speak many times in Isaiah 53 and other places of the suffering servant. That God's servant would come and have to suffer for us. And even in that then, Isaiah saw the suffering of the Messiah and proclaimed it. And it would have an effect. We just read here. There were those um, authorities and rulers and religious leaders that believed on him. But it doesn't seem like it was true faith. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Why would they do this? Why would they comprehend to one degree or another? Why would they have a desire of their hearts to follow Jesus, but not follow through on that? It says here, because they loved the praise, the glory of men, more than the praise and the glory of God. This indictment is tragic, but also poignant. That People would mentally assent, seems to be from what I can tell here, mentally assent, yes, I think Jesus is the Messiah, but there's no way that I can follow him because I'll lose my position. I'll lose my, my authority, and I can't let that happen. Folks, we need to understand that even the demons, right, the devil himself assents to who Jesus is. That's not enough. And I think these leaders were assent, assenting, were confirming, were believing the truths mentally about who Jesus was, but they weren't willing to put their faith and trust and depend on him for their salvation. They weren't willing to go that far because of pride. And there are many people that will be enveloped in eternal darkness because of their pride. They won't follow after the, the light of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, because, and their indictment will be through all eternity, they loved the praise, the glory of men more than the praise of God, the glory of God. Didn't Jesus just say that we would be honored one day? Folks, the honor that the Father gives us is so much more wonderful than any honor, any trophy, any um, um, raise in our paycheck or whatever that we would experience on this earth. And many times we forget that. There would be a few religious leaders, though, that would eventually make known their faith, right? Nicodemus, 
and others after Jesus' death would make it clear that they had trusted him. But most of them would not believe in him because of pride. Don't let pride keep you from faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, Jesus gives us one last all-important cry, public cry to people to believe on him and shows us we must believe to escape eternal darkness. Again, we've said this, verse 44, Jesus cried, and this was, is with a loud voice that could be heard. It's his last plea and said, he that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that seeth me, seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide and remain in darkness, is the idea there. Jesus is now emphasizing the teachings, themes throughout his teaching in one last public proclamation. And folks, it's some of the same themes that this gospel began with all the way back in John 1. Let me just read to you real quick so we have this idea in our minds as we get into the last aspect of Jesus' ministry. Remember what John told us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, equal with God. The same was in the beginning with God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Here's these themes again. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John 1, 9, that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. No man hath seen God at any time. Verse 18, the only begotten God, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. All of these truths Jesus now reiterates one more time. Let's look at verse 44 again. Here's the first truth. Faith in him is faith in the Father. Because he was sent by the Father. He that believeth on me, believeth not on me, but on him that sent me. These people that were around him, his audience, this Jewish audience, prided themselves on their relationship with God the Father, with Yahweh. And Jesus says, you don't trust him. You don't have relationship with him unless you believe me. Because I am the one that was sent by him. I am God and I know my Father. My very ministry and words are the words of the Father, and you must believe them. Faith in me is faith in the Father. The second one, verses 45 through 46, Jesus is describing himself as a light that allows sight of the Father. To truly see and understand the Father, you have to follow his light, and he delivers people from spiritual darkness. Verse 45, and he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not remain in darkness. He will deliver us from spiritual darkness. Jesus makes that clear here. The next one, verse 47, is that Jesus has come to offer salvation in his earthly ministry here and not judgment. He's come so that people can be saved and he calls for them to do so. Verse 47, if any man hears my words and believe not or does not keep them, I judge him not, for I come not to judge the world, but to save the world. We've heard this before. It's one more time he calls to the people to listen to him. He's calling them to believe him for salvation. But 
The other side of that, verse 48, is those that still reject him are not judged by him, but they're already condemned by the Father. They're all, we're already condemned because of our sins, folks, and Jesus is calling us to be saved from that condemnation. And when we reject God, we're already condemned. And that will be apparent one day in the final day of judgment as we're judged and we're thrown or cast into eternal darkness. A very sobering picture here. Those, and Let's look at verse 48. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him, that's the Father, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Those that reject the light, um, they keep themselves in condemnation, and one day will be judged for it permanently. For all eternity, Jesus is clear here. And then the final truth, Jesus' teaching has the authority of the Father, and his teaching lights the way to eternal life. Verse 49, for I have not spoken of my own authority or of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment. He gave me the teachings that I have taught, what I should say, what I should speak. The Father is in total agreement with everything that I've taught. You reject my teachings, you reject the very word of the Father. He is the word, right? Remember that. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. If you will follow my teachings, follow my way, believe in me, you will have eternal life. It is the way to eternal life. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. And he calls people, reminding people again of his unique relationship with the Father, and they need to believe in him and trust in him. These are his last public words. I was reminded of um, some other famous last public words. A number of years ago, I, I, as I've told you, I enjoy reading historical biographies and just reading books about history. And my wife uh, purchased for me a copy of David McAuliffe. He's a secular historian. He wrote a biography on John Adams. John Adams is a guy that should be near to the hearts of New Englanders, right? Because he was born just south of Boston became the second president of the United States, only had one term though, that who later became one of his best friends, Thomas Jefferson kind of stepped in and messed things up and uh, through a lot of scandal and different things, um, turned the people's opinion against John Adams. And he didn't get that second turn. And he was actually really bitter about that. You know, he, he grew up just south of Boston in Braintree, the, the Quincy area. I recently took the boys there. We gave mom a day off, uh, homeschool day, homeschool teacher day off, and let her do her own things. And I took them down there, and we looked at the place where he was born and the final place where he lived before he died. And um, also found in the midst of that the very first Dunkin' Donuts, uh, which I told the boys, look, boys, this is where John Adams had his very first donut. And they didn't believe that part. <laughs> But it is, it truly, it is right around the corner from his birthplace. I think there's a connection there. I still haven't figured that out yet. I have enjoyed, he was not certainly a perfect president, but toward the end of his life, it is interesting, he made some profound pro proclamations about the sovereignty of God and about who God is. But he was bitter when he lost that election. He left Washington without words to anybody. Two friends, he walked out of town, didn't say anything to Thomas Jefferson at all. And didn't even give last public words as president. 
He was so angry. But he did have opportunity later on in his life multiple times to be a state delegate from Massachusetts. And his last public words argument, and as an 85-year-old state delegate, was actually to argue for this state for religious freedom. And interestingly enough, for the Jews in particular, that they would have religious freedom. And I thought on that as I thought on Jesus' last words. Jesus' last public statement is even so much more poignant and needed because he's not just pleading for any kind of freedom, but what freedom, but what is Jesus pleading? That they will trust him. The Jews will experience true spiritual freedom and also the Gentiles. In Jesus' last public proclamation, he pleads with Jews and Gentiles to come to him through faith, that they will have spiritual freedom. What's an application as we finish up today? Well, I think back to those spiritual leaders who through their pride and arrogance wouldn't follow after Jesus. Folks, even as believers, we sometimes have difficulty prioritizing faithfulness. We let career and sports achievements and all kinds of other things get in the way of our primary dedication to Jesus Christ. Could it be said of us in a lesser extent that even as followers of Jesus, that many times we love the glory of men rather than the glory of God? Is sports or your career or your job, has it allowed you to put things um, in a greater priority than service to Jesus Christ? If so, let Jesus' warning remind us, let him be gloried most of all in your lives. And then also this whole idea of Jesus' authority comes from the Father, and we must submit to his authority because it is the authority of God. No matter what you face in your life, are you willing to submit to Jesus? And whatever he would call you to do, that reaches into the practicalities of life, doesn't it? So Jesus calls us to believe in his life. He calls us to trust in his victory over Satan and ability to save. And he also very clearly has warned us that rejection will truly have awful eternal consequences. And I hope you've seen that. So folks, reject pride. Reject whatever keeps you from putting faith in Jesus. Believe in his light. Submit to his authority. It's the authority of heaven. Believe in the light of Jesus while you have a chance. And for those of us that have, proclaim his light. Be an example. Children of light until Jesus returns. Father, let this last public proclamation and statement of Christ really work its way into our hearts. Again, if there's anyone here, even on Zoom or in the sound of my voice that has not trusted Christ, let them come to me. Let them come to one of our um, leaders here and talk to us that we can show them how they can easily trust Christ and know that they will have eter- they will walk in eternal light and have eternal life with you forever and will not be cast into outer darkness. Lord, let us then be the lights to a world that is in utter utter darkness and will be cast into outer darkness unless they trust Christ and boldly proclaim him until he returns. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.